Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. thought I'd tell you a little anecdote for the beginning of uh, this, and you'll remember my talking in 2022 about the weight loss drugs, or actually the diabetic drugs that GLP-1 uh, agonists that turn out to work so well for weight loss, and of course, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, water under the bridge since then. But I have been getting a couple of inputs from my patients. Uh, some of my patients, morbidly obese for the most part who are using Ozempic for weight loss have just not been able to afford their sometimes quite substantial co-pays. And they've been hearing on the internet about the compounded uh, Ozempic and Monjaro, semiglutide, and I'm sorry, the other one is terzipeptidae. Uh, these are essentially powders that can be purchased from uh, very cheaply on the uh, on the open market and then compounding pharmacies will make those up into an injectable form. So let's talk first of all about how this is legal. And when uh going back to 2022 in I think it was June, yeah. It was March actually. Uh because these drugs, semiglutide, uh, et cetera, had such demand, the FDA declared that semiglutide was, uh, and that's what's in Ozempic and Wigovi, was a, uh, was a shortage. It was on the shortage list. And that opened up the availability, uh, statutorily of compounding pharmacies making it. Anything that's officially on the shortage list, the compounding pharmacies can make, even if there's no licensed generic yet available. This is sort of a stopgap measure intended for temporary shortages due to, say, factory closings and the like to prevent life-saving drugs from drying up uh, for the people who need them. But it, like anything, you know, you can weaponize it. And so what happened in March was that compounding pharmacies got effectively a green light to begin making it out of powdered semiglutide. They reconstituted a little differently than what you would buy if you bought the Wygovi the or, the, or the Ozempic pen. But does that really affect its, its uh, action? Probably not. At least that's what people who have been using this have been saying is that it doesn't work quite as well, maybe, as the brand name, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper. We're talking about maybe $170 for a month's supply as opposed to $800 for a month's supply. But at $170, it's pretty uh, good business for those compounding pharmacies. So what is a compounding pharmacy and how different are they from your regular pharmacy? And the key point is that these are essentially craft breweries for drugs. They, uh, they have, they make small batches of drugs. A lot of, uh, veterinary, uh, use them, for example, because you have to find a form that you can get the animal to consume. And a lot of, uh, Alternative medicine doctors and functional medicine doctors will use them because they have somewhat different properties and you can adapt them better than the off-the-shelf drugs. It's kind of like, you know, if you go to a tailor and have the outfit tailored to fit your body versus you go to the uh, the store and you've got the choice of small, medium, and large, and extra large maybe, but that's going to be too big or too small for a great many people. And this 
and even more so in drugs, there's lots of individual variability. So it makes sense that we have compounding pharmacies. But because compounding pharmacists also make drugs that are injectable, and in fact, that's a lot of their products, they have to really watch their sterility. And sterility is a big problem in drug manufacture anyway, particularly for intravenous drugs. And stuff is even, you know, from major industrial sources gets pulled, uh, batches get pulled periodically because you just can't be perfect. We're going to talk about a little uh, little compounding pharmacy in Tennessee named ACA that I heard about today. And how I heard about it is kind of an interesting story. I thought I'd reach out to our my local compounding pharmacist, in this case, Ray, at uh, Loudon Pharmacy uh, over in Capitola, and ask him what the buzz was amongst, let's call it, ethical compounding pharmacies. I've been getting a lot of spam from people I, I've never heard of before uh, offering to sell me uh, semaglutide, and I've not really been tempted until recently when one of my patients who really needs it had uh, just was unable to get it. And so I thought, well, I'll explore it a little bit. So of course, I asked my my uh, trusty friend, Ray, and he told me an interesting story about a Tennessee pharmacy called ACA, which had uh, essentially had their licensing pulled. Ray also remarked that there had been several reports of death. I was unable to find any uh, anything online about that in uh, what I would consider a credible source. So I think that's rumor, and it may be true. But when you think about the number of prescriptions that have been prescribed here, and just this one pharmacy alone, between uh, for in about. Five months in 2023 did 80,000 prescription orders. And this is one pharmacy, 80,000 prescription orders for semaglutide. Now, in order to scale up between 2022 and 2023, this particular pharmacy had to add employees. And this is where we start to get into a little bit of the creepy stuff. they had to add a lot of employees, and in order to find them, they basically beat the bushes hiring people uh, out of Walmart to be pharmacy techs. These are people who are uh, who have no experience. Another person, fast food restaurant workers, just basically said, "Here, here's the prescription. Print them out, match them with the medication, verify the accuracy, get it in the mail," and there started to be. Well, let's just say misdirected strengths, the wrong person's medicine going to the wrong place. And that's because they were trying to do too much. They had a throughput and they didn't have quality control. Well, what happened next is actually very tragic uh, because when they had their audit in late 2023, their sterility was uh, they got dinged for sterility and the chief operating officer who was apparently very, very stressed uh, committed suicide. Now, admittedly, there may have been other things, probably were other things going on, but the uh, the timing of that is is suspicious because it occurred just a few days after the report, uh, the disciplinary order that was uh, that was then issued uh, basically pulled the this particular compounding lab out of the mix. But you have to ask yourself, do I want to be injecting something that where I'm not sure of its sterility? You know, the answer is no, you don't. Uh, you can get a serious infection, and particularly with, uh, inje- with intravenous or intrathecal, that is to say into the spinal cord uh, compounding pharmacies, which does happen, or IV, you know, we get a lot of IV bought bags. There's places who will, there's plenty of places in town who will hook you up to an IV and drop a uh, drop 500 cc's of B vitamin or glutathione or something like that. And I've always felt a little nervous about 
my compounding pharmacies for IVs. I don't use them just because, well, for one thing, I'm busy enough without doing it. And for another, I do worry about the uh, the sterility chain. And I think it's an important responsibility that uh, that we as physicians have in particular to not be too gung-ho about stuff. We need to be a little bit conservative. So after our cautionary tale, let's talk about uh, a public health alert that just came out. It's a good public health alert, uh, a situational update on COVID-19. I'll go through it very quickly. This just came out today. But if people have a positive COVID test, they were supposed to isolate at home for five days. Uh, the California Department of Public Health now says you can return to school or work after a positive test when you've been fever-free for 24 hours and your symptoms are either absent or mild and improving. So that's a, that's a relief. That's certainly going to help with the school system and just in time because it's the winter cold and flu season and we'll have half of the kids uh, not in school if we keep to the previous recommendations. And this, of course, applies to people who have been vaccinated or people who have had a COVID vaccine within the last year, I mean, a COVID uh, infection within the last year. Now, these, you could ask, well, is this going to cause a, a, a bump? Uh, Oregon implemented similar guidelines more than six months ago. They haven't seen more hospitalizations, but of course they did that in the summer. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the weekend. Uh, Basically, your guidance is as follows. If you test positive for COVID-19 and you'd have no symptoms, you can go to, you can return to work or school but you should mask when you're around people for 10 days when you're indoors. And you can stop masking if you go more than two, if you have two subsequent tests two days in a row. And you're supposed to avoid any contact with high risk people for 10 days. And that would be people in nursing homes, unvaccinated infants, people on chemotherapy, et cetera. If you do have symptoms, you have to stay home until you uh, haven't had a fever without using Tylenol or something to bring the fever down. And you have to be have mild symptoms and be getting better. Same things for protecting other people when indoors as before. And for people who've been exposed to a confirmed case of COVID, uh, this is what the new recommendations are. If you develop any symptoms, test immediately. Uh, if you have no symptoms, then test within five days of exposure if you're high risk or if you have contact with high risk individuals. And then you're also supposed to just wear a mask indoors for 10 days after your known exposure. So I hope that clarifies things. It's going to open, it's going to open things up for us, including me, because in my clinic, I have many patients who have been having trouble hearing me when I'm wearing a mask. And it, it is a challenge for people who are hearing impaired, because many of them, without realizing it, have learned to lip read. So uh, positive stuff coming down the news there on the COVID front. Our next story is an interesting way to reduce aggressive behavior in men. Uh, Exposure to to the smell of women's tears. New research that was published Uh, in PLOS biology shows that tears from women contain chemicals that block aggression in men. Now, this was known to be true in rodents. It's uh, when they smell female rodent tears, they they have less aggression. That's called social chemo signaling. And of course, we have all kinds of chemo signaling going on on in animals. Think butt stick sniffing in dogs. And there's quite a bit of that uh, going on in humans, but these researchers, uh, Labla at the Warchman, excuse me, Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel, led by Shani Agron, and of course it's uh, definitely uh, int- just an interesting thing that this research was done in Israel. Uh, they had people play a two-person game. The game was designed 
to elicit aggressive behavior against the other player because the men were led to believe that that other player was cheating. Later on in the game, when given the opportunity, the men could get revenge on the cheating player by causing them to lose money. Now, the men were then given either saline or female women's tears to, uh, of course, those are odorless, but uh, revenge-seeking aggressive behavior during the game dropped 40% after the men sniffed women's tears. So they're like, whoa, okay, works in humans. Let's see what's going on in the brain. So they repeated uh, this in an MRI scanner, and what it showed was that two different aggression-related brain regions, the anterior insula and the prefrontal cortex, became that had that otherwise became more active when the men were provoked during the game, did not become active in the same situations when the men were sniffing tears. And individually, the greater the difference in this brain activity, the less often the player took revenge. Uh, we've got to isolate this chemical. This could be the this could be a key to world peace, if you ask me. And we have to figure out whether women's tears work in women, or males' tears work in women. I'm very interesting to see whether there's reciprocity or if there's just magic in the tears of sad women. So we were talking about the public health uh, changes, but there may be on the horizon something really exciting to help prevent uh, spread of flu in people. So let's start by talking about uh, sialic acid. These are uh, compounds that exist on the surfaces of the cells lining the sinuses and the throats of mammals, humans included, and viral particles target them just exactly the way that the spike protein was targeting the ACE2 receptor. Sialic acids are the targets for many viruses and many bacteria. So the way this, this is also, by the way, one of the reasons that when you're in dry air, when you're on an airplane and you are breathing that dry air, you're more likely to pick up a cold. Not necessarily that there are more viruses in the air. In fact, there's probably less. But because you dry up your mucus, and your mucus contains lots and lots of sialic acid mimics. So the, any viral particles that land on the mucus basically get bound to the mucus and are not able to reach their target. So a new study in infant mice shows that keeping the the virus particles from attaching to sialic acids uh, does more than just limit the entry of influenza A viral infections. It also hinders their exit. So in other words, shedding and transmission can be improved by this strategy. And we're talking about 36,000 Americans dying ostensibly of flu every year. And while vaccines help, it would be awfully nice to be able to just know that you're going into a crowded social situation and give yourself a little squirt in the nose of a neuramidase enzyme. So these uh, researchers are at NYU, Grossman School of Medicine, and they stripped away or desialated the sialic acid receptors uh, by placing directly into the baby mice nasal cavities, an enzyme that basically loosened the sialic acid, prevented it from staying attached to the cell surfaces. And they then were infected these infant mice with influenza A. And the reason they chose infant mice is that there are many, many sialic acids in the upper parts of the respiratory tract in infant mice. So it was allowing them to have a proof of concept. What they showed was that the neuramidase enzyme cut mouse-to-mouse transmission by more than half. So uh, it went to 51% on the lowest trial and 100% on uh, the other trial on a and they checked, of course, a bunch of different influenza strains. But this was pretty uh, pretty impressive. They blocked a couple of sialic acids, which are widely present in the human respiratory tracts, 
And so that's why they use the infant mice, because it is a strong model for studying the spread of infectious disease in children. And as anyone who has had young children knows, they are culture media for viruses and bacteria. And when you, you, as soon as that kid goes into any kind of congregate setting, whether it's daycare or school, they're going to bring home a whole bunch of colds and flus, and you and the other caregivers are going to get sick. So if we have a kid with a with a cold or a flu and we were able to just give them these nose drops, we might be able to protect the parents. So this is this shows that treating the host prevents them from transmitting. And so this looks like a molecule uh, treatment, a molecular treatment that we'd want to to explore further. Meanwhile, while they're busy developing this into an expensive pharmaceutical, my recommendation is colloidal silver. Uh, Colloidal silver is just silver molecules suspended in a liquid, the colloid, and silver is very, very toxic, as is copper for that matter, to bacteria. Copper surfaces are not going to harbor bacteria, and the same is true for silver-coated uh, silver coated surfaces. So it's very difficult for bacteria to build a biofilm because they can't, they can't survive on the material long enough to do it. So you can get colloidal silver at your local health food store. I recommend during this cold and flu seasons that you consider picking up uh, a box or two uh, ju- just to squirt in your nose when you're going into those congregate settings where you don't want or can't wear a mask. This on the cloning front, before I talk about cloning, the, a newly successful method for cloning rhesus monkeys, which will allow us to use rhesus monkeys as lab rats because we haven't been able to do that. I'll explain why in a moment. Okay, rhesus monkeys. They've managed to clone and one and actually get it to live to adulthood. Now, they've been able to, to clone long-tailed macaques and goats and, of course, sheep. But primates are complicated. And there's been a historically low uh, survival rate for the standard cloning technique. This is called somatic cell nuclear transfer. And basically, you take... A, a somatic cell, a, a body cell, and you take out the nucleus and then you transfer it into an ovum whose nucleus has been removed and then you place that in a surrogate mom. And it doesn't work very well. And the researchers sort of thought it might have something to do with the placenta. Let me just say that, of course, you got the sperm and the egg and they get together but what turns on and where from dad and from mom is very different. So the placenta mainly comes from the male, from the sperm. The placenta is a complicated organ. It filters the blood. It regulates a lot of the growth in the fetus, and it's also sort of the immune system for the fetus, preventing nasty stuff from getting in there. If you do this somatic nuclear cell transfer, you're using a somatic cell. The, the genes that would have come from the father are, have been altered during the course of development of that individual into a living entity. So you're no longer uh, dealing with the same cell, even though the, the information is in there. A lot of it's turned off. And what's that, what that leads to is real problems. This is why we've had such difficulty with parthenogenesis, which is where you manage to induce uh, the egg to start dividing on its own, uh, and that has not, uh, that's not really worked. So to investigate the cloning process, this was a group in Shanghai, they did, they looked at the difference in two types of embryos, these, the somatic cell nuclear transfer, and just intracytoplasmic sperm cell injection. So basically, you take a sperm, put it in a, a syringe, and you, and you squirt it into the egg. So that technique, the latter one, 
the intracytoplasm experiment is about twice as good and much better in terms of the yield, and that's because of the differences in methylation. Methylation is one of the several epigenetic processes that affects the levels of gene expression. The researchers also found that genes that would normally be expressed differently in the maternal and paternal genomes lost their distinct patterns in cloned embryos for the reasons I've talked about, but the placenta was particularly affected. So they decided, let's do a placental transfer. They replaced the placenta of the cloned embryo. Once you had the two poles that form in the early, early embryo, you've got once you've got one side that's going to become the uh, fetus and you've got another side that's going to become the placenta. And if you go and basically core the fetus and out and drop it into a uh, standard embryo, you can actually sort of transplant a healthy placenta with all the right epigenetics. And as you might expect, that is complicated. I would comment briefly on the idea that we need to be cloning monkeys for experimental purposes. You know, there's some ethical issues about using smarter animals that can you know, suffer. Sometimes perhaps there's a, a justification for that. We won't debate the animal rights issue tonight. But when you use genetically identical animals. You have to ask, why are you doing that? Because you're trying to show drug efficacy, right? Why why show drug efficacy? Because you want to develop new drugs and you want to get something statistically significant that stands out so that you push it further. So that gets, what, what you get is you get a candidate genetic line well, you get a genetic line that yields a candidate drug that works in those cloned monkeys. And then you take it through the drug development process, and then we use it in wild-type humans. Typically, this is going to be for psychiatric drugs, uh, antidepressants, because you can sort of figure out what a monkey is thinking and how they're feeling because they have complex facial expressions and complex behaviors. So the yield here is to get something that's statistically significant that A, we can publish, and B, we can make. But the ultimate efficacy of a drug is is based on false premises here because humans aren't clones. We're genetically very different. So I ask, and it's rhetorical, but I, I ask, shouldn't we be doing our research on mixed populations for drug development, genetically mixed populations? Yes, we'd have to... We'd, it would be harder to get statistical significance, but it would be easier to get agents that would work across a wide swath of the mammals. And I might add, it would be easier to identify when there's just a no-go on a particular drug because a small subset of the population will be damaged by it. We don't get to know that with our drug development process. And you have to ask yourself, uh, should we be thinking in terms of the real basic principles of statistics, which is you do your test in a population, your test, your statistics tell you something about the population you tested. If you do all your testing in 24-year-old 70-kilogram men who are at least 5'10 in height, then your results will be correct for that group, but they won't necessarily be correct for a 78-year-old woman who is five feet tall in height. In fact, they almost certainly will not be correct, and yet that's where we get our drug dosing. So, yeah, I think that we are blinded by science, literally, uh, when it comes to drug development. And this study, that you didn't expect it to go in that direction, but yes, it's cool science, and it teaches us something about embryology, but I think it's actually a bad idea. Okay, so we'll go to our email. Actually, it's one person, but two questions. 
And uh, this is from Anonymous in Ben Lomond. Uh, Dear Dr. Don, I have two topics to submit for your comments. Probably both will be of interest to your listeners, so I hope you will mention them on your show and podcast. Due to the stigma attached to the second, I would like to remain anonymous. The first is regarding taking ibuprofen just before going to bed. Both my husband and I have noticed that when we do this, we tend to sleep more soundly, not even waking up at all until the alarm goes off. Most nights, we both have to get up at least once to go to the bathroom, and he often gets sinus congestion that forces him to change position frequently as well. We don't take ibuprofen unless we need to for pain relief, but when we do, we like this beneficial side effect. Do you think it's just a coincidence? Are actually connected to the use of ibuprofen. Is there any danger to taking it just before bed? So I'm going to start uh, anonymous with that second question there. Is there any danger taking it just before bed? And unfortunately, yes, there is. It uh, If you take it, let's say, just before bed, and it's two or three hours after dinner, and your stomach is empty, you take some water, you're going to run the risk of gastrointestinal bleeding because that ibuprofen will sit there against the wall and it may have uh, create a little tiny chemical burn. And if it always ends up kind of lying in the same place, you could end up get, you know cutting yourself an ulcer. So I think that I understand if you're in pain, you're not going to sleep very well, and that may be part of the explanation for what you've observed. But I also think that you could take it perhaps an hour before bed or take it in a liquid form and chase it with some uh, substantial amount of water, say eight ounces, uh, an hour before bed, and you'd maybe get your benefit without quite the same amount of risk. Okay, so I went looking because I thought, well, is this a thing? And so a little bit of web search turned up a lot of controversy. Uh, Certainly, there was a social media, Reddit in this case, uh, thread about, yeah, it's a thing. It works for me. I Other people... uh, chimed in saying, yes, that's my experience. Then, of course, there were a lot of other practical uh, solutions to it. But I uh, I thought it was interesting that there were a lot of hits of people saying, yep, that's I have noticed that. I didn't know that worked for anybody else. So I took a look at uh, some at the science then, uh, Google Scholar search with the keywords, and there I got all kinds of contradictory suggestive evidence. Uh, One study in 1994 looked at uh, three different doses. Uh, Ibuprofen was given at 2300 on the day prior to sleep recording, and uh, then they gave it again the subsequent night. And they found that aspirin and ibuprofen actually disrupted sleep in comparison to placebo, increasing the number of awakenings and the time spent in the wake stage uh, and decreasing sleep efficiency. It also, ibuprofen at least, just delayed the onset of deeper levels of sleep. Now, this was a study of younger people, probably probably re- uh, college students, and because where do you you know where do you get your your human lab rats, college students, med students, grad students? It's a, a, a great pool. So possibly the effect is different in older people. I would say it probably is because of just low grade pain. Now if I check in on myself right now, I've got a little burning in my neck because I've spent the whole day at my computer, and. Everything else, you know, I just did my scan. Everything else feels okay. But you have a, you're distracted during the day and you don't feel your low-grade pains. At night, you feel them more. And I think even if you're asleep, you probably feel them more. And they encourage movement like you were talking about with your husband. The other study I found uh, suggested, well, maybe there's an anxietolytic effect. And I have to share an anecdote here just about the 
suggestion and auto-hypnosis. When ibuprofen was first available, I was back in medical school, and there was a big jar of ibuprofen in one of the resident lounges, and we were basically you know, not getting much sleep and had lots of aches and pains. But I would feel a little euphoric after taking some ibuprofen, and we all sort of said, yeah, it makes you feel, it gives you an energy burst, it makes you feel better. And I I wonder how much of that was just suggestion. Can't say. But if you do a rat study, I think you can rule out uh, suggestion. So a group in uh, 2016 actually tested male, of course, Sprague Dolly rats, and they gave him ibuprofen for 14 days. And then they checked how they did in various stressful exams there's a there's some there's a one where you have the put the rat in the center of an open space and time how long it takes them to head for the wall and there's another one where you have them do a maze they measured the expression of pro-inflammatory mediators like tumor necrosis factor interleukin 1b and bdnf in the hippocampus and they felt that the ibuprofen might have potential for PTSD uh, due to its anti-inflammatory activity in the brain. And that is an interesting hypothesis. I couldn't find anyone else following up on it, but brain inflammation definitely is a thing, and maybe you're treating that thing with your ibuprofen. I really can't say, but it's an intriguing thought. Coming back to Anonymous's letter, the second has to do with urinary incontinence and the treatment I've received, which has made a significant improvement in control. I'm 61 years old and had a hysterectomy in 2012. For the last several years, I was experiencing daily leakage due to both stress and urgency or overactive bladder until my doctor referred me to a physical therapist who specializes in pelvic floor issues. What I learned there was that doing Kegels incorrectly or too frequently can cause the muscles around the bladder to spasm or stiffen, putting constant pressure on the bladder that is more than the sphincter is able to contain. This causes urgency. In other words, by doing too many Kegels or doing them improperly, you almost are creating the same situation that men with an enlarged prostate have, where there's pressure on the urethra. And that triggers irritation. Uh, Anonymous goes on. I was taught several stretching movements with breathing and visualization techniques to release the pelvic floor muscles and was shown how to use a device that can reach inside to apply direct pressure and massage the muscles to relieve the spasms. As a result, I've regained about 70% control, making it possible to reach a bathroom in time most days and some days not experiencing any leakage at all. I'm so grateful that there is a way to improve quality of life without resorting to surgery, and I wanted to share this information to give hope to others who may be suffering with the discomfort and embarrassment of incontinence. Thank you for all that you do to support health and spread knowledge for everyone you reach, and congratulations on your position directing the Integrative Medicine and Well-Being Curriculum at Dominican, training new residents to serve our healthcare community. Well, thank you very much, Anonymous, and I'm glad you were listening, and I'm sure that some of our listeners will be very glad they heard you. So another story about organoids. Organoids are a thing right now. They're quite the fashion. In this case, we're talking about retina, retinorganoids uh, uh, being researched. To answer that question, why people see colors that dogs can't? Humans are able to see millions of distinct colors. How it's done has been a mystery until now, and we're starting to unravel it. But it's hard to study the eye. But now that we have organoids, that we can make tiny little retinas grow in a Petri dish or in effectively culture medium. And they can, you can study things like colorblindness, age related vision loss like macular degeneration and other diseases linked to photoreceptor cells. And we've been able to understand how the genes actually direct the differences. 
So let's start with opsin, rhodopsin. This is uh, a protein that's found in the eye that detects light and tells the brain what the wavelength of that light is. We have receptors for red and green. This is what they were studying. We also have a blue receptor. But they found that a molecule called retinoic acid, which is closely related to the tretinoin, which is used uh, for a wrinkle treatment and for acne treatment in dermatology, retin-A. Retinoic acid is effectively a form of vitamin A, and it determines whether a cone will specialize in sensing either red or green light. Now, only humans with normal vision and closely related primates develop the red sensor at all. And for years, scientists thought, well, it's going to be either red or green through a kind of genetic coin toss mechanism. And previous researchers said, well, maybe that could there could be a factor related to thyroid. But this new research says, no, actually, it's retinoic acid that orchestrates the differentiation of these sensors. What they found was that in retinas or retino organoids that had high levels of vitamin A in their culture medium, they developed a much higher ratio of green cones. And similarly, those with low levels of vitamin A changed the retina's genetic instructions and generated red cones a little further on in development. So it's one of those, which way, which way do you go? And I was, as I read that, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if that was an adaptation, a dietary adaptation? Because think about it. If you have a higher ratio of green cones, you're going to be able to see more nuanced shades of green. And what are early humans and early hominids eating? Well, they're eating lots of vegetables. And so when the diet is high in uh, vegetable material, you're going to get more vitamin A into the mix, and that would lead to a better ability to differentiate green colors. The genes for the sensors are 96% identical, but the subtle differences evolve based on how much retin-A there is. This is just the beginning of unraveling this mystery because we really don't fully understand how we can get such different levels of green and red cones in different people's eyes without really affecting their vision. Now, I would say probably the answer there is neurological. As a a longtime photographer, I have been taking photographs since before the CCD. We used uh, film, this thing that you put into a camera on a roll, and it was sensitive to specific wavelengths of light. So at night, if I took a picture in uh, my house where there were incandescent bulbs, that photo would come out very orange, very warm. If I took that picture in a room with fluorescent bulbs, it would come out very green. And if I happened to be outside and took the picture with the same film outside, I would get a more realistic color tone because that's how the chemicals were reacting. But if you are in a room lit by incandescent light, you don't see the yellow that much. You, Your brain actually corrects for the colors. The same thing is true for fluorescent. Our brain does a whole lot of processing so that we see pretty much the same colors uh, like the little teal, cute little teal squid here in the lotus position that's sitting on the uh, board that I just love, uh, that is going to be, to my brain, the same teal color because the brain will compensate. And, of course, once the computerized cameras came out, we have this thing called white balance. And, again, that's the processor of our brain. So I think the answer is our built-in white balance probably explains why the ratios can be so different, but people can agree. And it also goes back to an old philosophical question, one that's gotten a lot of dusting off and reuse in the last few years on the internet, and that's the idea of how do you know that what I call green is what you call green, and likewise for other things? And the answer is, yeah, we kind of know. And it's not really a fair philosophical question anymore. 
So we will leave the we will leave the allusion to the simulation behind, and move to a couple of studies that I think uh, work in favor of. Well, let's call it uh, social justice and helping understand uh, exactly how social injustice affects health. So let's start with uh, a, a new study that just was published, came out of the Columbia University School of Public Health. They were looking at declines in lead blood levels associated with long-term cardiovascular health improvements in American Indian adults. What they found was small declines in lead blood levels were associated with long-term cardiovascular health improvements. Uh, Participants who had the greatest reductions in blood levels saw their systolic blood pressure fall by 7 millimeters of mercury. Now, we've known for a long time in functional medicine that high lead can affect the blood pressure. And in fact, there are several excellent placebo trials doing chelation in people who have hypertension and had large occupational blood lead, well, had high lead exposures occupationally, had hypertension, showing that in such individuals, you can cure their hypertension by getting the lead out of their system. The researchers worked on four tribal communities, Arizona, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and South Dakota, and lead was first measured in blood collected during the 1997-1999 study visit, and again a follow-up visit in 2006-2009, so about a 10-year difference. So during this time, the people had their blood pressure measured, and they had echocardiograms. And at the start of the study, the average blood level was uh, 2 micrograms per deciliter. I will say that officially 10 micrograms per deciliter is when we start chelating children. During the study, the level fell... uh, by 0.67, it fell 33%. But the most significant changes were with the people with blood levels starting at about three. Now, I want to emphasize these blood levels for lead are in the normal range. How did they get the blood levels reduction? Well, they didn't chelate them. They didn't give them susimer. Uh, what, what they did was the environment got cleaned up, and we've reduced lead exposure through paint. We've understood how old pipes can cause lead poisoning. We've improved uh, access to a cleaner environment. And the American Indian communities are disproportionately exposed to elevated levels of lead. And just like uh, what I was saying before, if you want to get statistical significance on your trial, go after a population that's likely to give it to you. Another study that speaks to justice and equity concerns is work that is being done by environmental epidemiologists at Columbia School of Public Health, uh, same place actually, and they are looking at exposure to air pollution, including income, time spent outdoors, maternal age, country of birth, transportation type in season. So they This study is important because they had a silicon wristband that people wore for 48 hours, and this measured their exposure to polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Now, PAHs are a product of combustion. What you were breathing back in August of 2020, when we had those lovely sunsets and the fires were going on here, Uh, in this part of California, you were breathing a lot of PAHs. It's found also in tobacco, automobile exhaust, and it's been linked to problems with fetal growth and neurodevelopment. So this study looked at pregnant women in 177 of them in their third trimester of pregnancy. So they did a, a survey related to their demographic and employment information, where they lived, how close they lived to a major road, because uh, there's still issues there. Looked at all of these different compounds. It's the largest study that's been done on more than just a couple of compounds. And what they found was that exposure had complicated interactions between the demographics and the behaviors. But they were able to study this and come to some conclusions 
And these are things that we can all use wherever you live and whatever your economic level. First of all, avoid tobacco smoke. Duh, right? Uh, But have good indoor ventilation in the kitchen. Reducing your intake of smoked, grilled, or charbroiled foods. And that's because well, you think about smoked and grilled, you're burning the food. So there's your combustion. And the polycyclic uh, compounds are actually, the aromatics are actually coming off of the meat in many cases. So they're intrinsic to that. And if you cook that way, you'll also, you'll increase your risk. This is particularly important for people with certain genetic uh malformations or malformations, SNPs, variations. There's one in particular, 1B1, which is a uh, part of your detoxification, your breakdown pathway. It's used for a lot of drugs, a lot of compounds. But when you break down, uh, when you break down estrogen using 1B1, you turn it into a form of estrogen that can actually cause cancer. So people who have this 1B1 upregulated uh, mutation really do need to be very, uh, to cook their food uh, at a lower temperature, to really reduce the amount of smoked food and grilled food that they eat because they don't want to see that black, you don't want to see that black stuff and you don't want to saturate the thing with smoke because the more of these PAHs that you consume, the more upregulation of this enzyme, and at least for women, and probably also for men, because this probably contributes to prostate cancer as well. Uh, that's probably I have not I have not actually researched it to see that it's been proven. So limit your exposure to diesel film fumes and wood smoke. Be sure that you're upwind from your uh, from your campfire. You don't use uh, mothballs. Mothballs are very high in polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And be sure that you wear gloves when you're touching soot or uh, creosote-treated lumber because you'll absorb this stuff through your skin. It's it's lipid-soluble. It'll soak in to your skin. And last but not least, treated lumber, the sort of thing you might build a deck out of, used to be have arsenic in it. Now it has these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in it and it is very, very toxic. And if you breathe it into your lungs, you're also going to end up with it in your body. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at, at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.